Okay, we're talking about progressive sanctification this morning. And uh, we're asking, what is the role of the believer and the indwelling Holy Spirit? How does that, how does that flesh out? How does that work? We're all, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay. We don't wait for that. That happens at the moment of faith. You may not have realized it at the moment you were, put your faith and trust in God, but as you studied the Word, you begin to realize that God, the Holy Spirit, lived within and placed you in the body of Christ, and you are now in union with Him. So, uh, we have various ways of how this has worked ever since the day of Pentecost. Uh, churches have uh, seen this in various ways. Theologians have seen this in various ways. And as a result, a lot of this uh, air and a lot of these things have carried on since then. And this is called, and there is also a positional sanctification. <laughs> Somebody read Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, talking about positional sanctification. Sanctification is a word that comes from a group of family of words that means holy, and it means, remember Paul says, or Peter says, be holy for I am holy. In other words, it's a growth in holiness. And, uh, but when you're saved, you are justified it's a forensic act by which you are declared holy. And that's what we call positional sanctification. So at the moment you breathed out faith in Christ and repentance toward Him, you were declared by God holy on the basis that Jesus died on the cross and paid for all your sins. Past, present, and Future. How about that? So, uh, if we're going to live tomorrow, are we going to sin? Did God take care of that? Yes. Yep. You can rest in that. So there's that. And But what about the sin we do commit tomorrow? Is there ramifications for that? Yes, there is. And that's what we got to take care of, and that's what we call progressive sanctification. Growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become confirmed the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow. First of all, this is very important that uh, we know that God uh, foreordained us to become, become one of his children. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That was the purpose. That we would become like his son in life. Now this is an unattainable a thing, but it is a goal of each of us to become like his son. E even Paul says in Philippians, he says, I have not attained. Paul did not reach perfection, but he was on the road to it, and he desired it. And so when he sinned, as we all do, we have to make, we go to God and say, Lord, I have sinned. And uh, if we confess our sin, he is what? Faithful. Faithful. He'll do the same thing every time. And he is just. He is righteous. He's fair. He can, he can forgive us our sin because Christ paid for it. And uh, then he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Now, I can't, I, I can't come in the evening and say, Lord, uh, I sinned today and, and I can't list them all. I got up in the morning and I barked out a few commands unlovingly to my wife. That ever happened? Or uh, they to me. 
and my reaction was not exactly holy. And and I could just can't can I just cannot go back and list 500 sins that I committed, but there may be one or two that I knew I really blew. So at night I say I really blew it. I went fishing today and I caught a six incher that by the time I told my friends it had grown to 12. <laughs> so I wasn't really telling the truth. I lied. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful, all the rest of them takes care of them. What a great thing that is. What a relief that is. Okay, that's progressing on. I mean, this is positional truth. Look at verse 30. Of these he predestined, he called, he predestined us, past tense. He also called us, past tense. For those whom he called, he also justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, past tense, he also glorified, past tense. Wow. None of us are glorified at this point. Any believer right now in this room, none of us are glorified. But it's so sure to happen that he can say it's in the past tense. Now, that is eternal security. It's in the past tense. So, uh, praise his name for that. So, progressive sanctification is the lifetime work of a believer to conform to the image of his son. And progressive sanctification will be our theme in this, these two studies that I will do. Hopefully get them done. Salvation gives us a new standing with God and a holy perspective of life. But we're still in the same cursed body with the same desires. If you like chocolate before you were saved, being saved did not change that desire. Did it? No. You still like chocolate. And when you got saved, you still live in the same house or in the same family. And you still have the same old desires that you've always had. But at salvation, you became a new creature in Christ. Take a look at Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. So these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Okay, you've got a war going on the minute you put your faith and trust in Christ. You got a war between the old man and you you are made a new creature, a new creation in Christ, so there's a battle taking place. A battle between what God wants you to do and what your flesh, your old man wants you to do. That battle rages a lifetime. Like I've told you, I had an old friend uh, when I was just starting out in the ministry after seminary and and uh, this guy was uh, quite a, a businessman in Kansas City who accepted the Lord. And he was in his 70s when I talked to him, and he said, uh, Age is no sanctifier of the flesh. It doesn't get any easier. Uh, the it doesn't get any easier as you grow older. You're still fighting the same battles. You may have won some. But you gain others. And it just keeps, as you study the Word, God reveals more and more of our nature that we have to deal with as we go. So that's what we're talking about down here. Uh, Rod? Yes? Uh, there's a good verse in Psalms 40. David, I think he understood sin probably as good as anybody because he most certainly committed a lot of it and understood it and knew what to do with it. So here's a verse, and he's talking, he says, For innumerable evils have compassed me about mine iniquities, have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look upon them more than the hairs of my head. 
therefore my heart fails me. Right. Boy, when you think about the hairs of your head, you know what I mean? And he's talking about his sin. Well, there's some That's here that don't have as much hair as the others. Yeah, <laughs> they've lost it over sin, I guess. <laughs> I have no idea. But <laughs> well, no. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> That's good. I don't want to cause a riot. <laughs> no, exactly. But he knew how to handle sin in a way to confess and get right with God. He did have one problem. Yeah. He did not have the Holy Spirit. No. Right. Hating and abetting him yeah. to live a godly life. <clears throat> so he had the law, mm -hmm. and he tried to live up to the law. But, and the law, by the way, makes you, uh, alerts you to sin. Mm -hmm. The law tells you how bad a sinner you are. And he had that, and so he knew that. Okay, let's take a look at the various views, and we'll start with perfectionism which we call. This is mainly the view of the holiness movements such as Wesleyans, Pentecostals, who believe that at some crisis there is a second or third work of grace or the baptism of the Holy Spirit when a believer can reach the point of sinlessness. Uh, the Nazarenes, for example, and I'm not I'm not knocking them, I'm just telling you what they believe. The Nazarenes believe that when you come to a point and you realize you're a sinner after your salvation, that you need to be sanctified, and so consequently you need to go to the altar and pray through. And pray till you come to a feeling that you have prayed enough and you are <coughs> sanctified. If you listen to some go Southern gospel music, it's full of this being sanctified. And that is from that Armenian, uh, Armen Armenian viewpoint that you can lose your salvation. And it's from that point that you need to do some, have some special work of grace in order to really fulfill your life. And you reach a point of sinless perfection. That does not mean you may make wrong choices and bad choices, but you are no longer sinning. So they pray through. And their verse would be, uh, look at Romans 6.6. 6. But hang on, I'm not giving all their verses, but this is their viewpoint. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Not be slaves to sin. That's one of the verses they hang on, but it's totally out of context. It does not mean that we don't sin. It means that sin has no longer dominion over us. We don't have to sin as Christians. Uh, we do sin, but we don't have to. Uh, it's a choice on our part. So this is those, they would have altar call after altar call, and then you would go to the front, and I, and I remember uh, some people coming here from the Nazarene background, and they would say, where is our kneeling benches at the front? And it would be nice, would it not, if you could go to the front and get rid of the sin nature. Boom. All right, so uh, another one would be Romans 6, 11, which says, Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in context, that's where we are not under dominion of sin. We need to consider ourselves dead to it. A big sin of mine would be going to a uh, smorgasbord. I don't have to eat everything on there, but I do. I could eat salad and lettuce leaves, bird seed, and walk out of there. But that's not the case. So I try to avoid that. All right. Then there's the Keswick 
movement, or we could call it quietism. It's a Quaker viewpoint where you just sit and soak. The popularity of this movement came in the mid-1800s, the Keswick movement, and the main emphasis of this camp was to let go and let God, that was their phrase. Just let go, and God will do all the work for you. Uh, the, the Christians are to take a passive role in their life, and rely upon God who will do all that is necessary for growing spiritually. So that you can just sit and it, let God go. In other words, you don't have to do anything. This comes up in several views of sanctification. Look at Romans 8 verses 2 to 3 where they uh, lock on to. Romans chapter 8 verses 2 to 3. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, it's all of the Lord, and we and, and we would we would agree with that, wouldn't we? That living a Christian life is all of the Lord. But what about all these imperatives? Walk in the Spirit. And you go through these uh, various <coughs> imperatives that are given in Romans, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The Bible is full of imperatives, the New Testament, for the believer. And uh, their view is, if you just listen to the Word, meditate quietly, God will do this work for you. Let go, let God. Don't worry about the imperatives. Uh, how about the next one, is the one that's popular too, is dedication. That's what we call it. Uh, the view was prompted by Lewis Perry Chafer in his book, He That Is Spiritual, which was written in 1923. He believed, and rightly so, that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables the Christian to obey and grow spiritually. We would agree with that, would we not? We'd agree with that. Uh, the Christian is saved by grace alone, and afterwards, at moments of serious reflection, the one who dedicates or rededicates his life to the Lord, then the Spirit is basically in control. Now, I went to... Uh, uh, a lot of meetings at camp meetings in uh, Aurora when I was a kid. They used to have a Crusade for Christ building. It started in a gym, Youth, Youth for Christ, on Saturday nights, once a month. And they would have uh, evangelists come in and preach. Fiery evangelist, he would preach salvation, uh, clear, uh, and people were saved there. And then afterwards, they'd have an altar call all of you that would raise your hand during a prayer were to come forward, and then they would, uh, you would repeat the prayer after the person and you were saved. And then after that altar call would be another altar call that you would come and dedicate your life to the Lord. You were saved, but you really weren't living for the Lord, so you needed to come forward and dedicate your life to the Lord. Any of you been in those meetings? Ron. Roger. All the R's in this group. <laughs> and then if you uh, had dedicated your life to the Lord and you still weren't walking, you needed to rededicate. And this is based on Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. I went to uh, Bible college in Omaha and they'd have, they had a speaker come in, R.R. Uh, R. Brown, maybe some of you heard of him years and years ago, he was a big preacher in Omaha at the Gospel Tabernacle. And uh, he came in and he preached a sermon, and all those who were to be saved, wanted to be saved, were to come forward. And then there was a dedication service, if you weren't really walking with the Lord, 
And then they had another altar call if you were not a soul winner. And then they had an altar call if you had a mother. <laughs> so, so that last one, I, but it seemed to me like that. And by the time he was done with the altar call, there was hardly anybody left in the pews. I and some others. But the point, of course, is that uh, the, the dedication view is that you have crisis experiences in your life, and that's what jettisons you into growing with the Lord, rather than a steady growth, uneven as it may be, but it's a, but it's a continuous growth in the Christian life. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, how, how is this that you are to give your body to the Lord? What does verse 2 say? Transform. Be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind, continually. This is a continual step, continual growth, that you may discern what is good and what is not good. It's a continual growth. Give yourself to the Lord. Your body is the Lord's. Your life is the Lord's. Give it to Him. But it's that steady uh, renewal of your mind. How many times do uh, your mind have to be renewed? I'm reading a book right now that's challenging my thinking quite a bit. Not in major fundamental doctrines, but in some views that I've held over the years. And uh, it's kind of a renewal of my mind, going back and looking over what I believed. Was that really what the Scripture says? Or is this uh, guy right in pointing these things out? It's uh, got to be like the Brians in Acts 16. They checked everything out in the Word of God. And as you do that, you just keep renewing your mind and it changes things and thoughts, habits in your life. And frees you from others. You may have been a slave to some legalistic habit that suddenly you realize, I don't have to be a slave to that. But you develop another habit like uh, being in the Word on a daily basis, praying more, and all those kinds of things, and witnessing as, you, as the Holy Spirit begins to really occupy in your life and you give it to Him. It doesn't come all at once. It's not like perfectionism. We can't go to the altar, pray through, and get it. It's, uh, it's a daily thing. It's a, a growth thing. This view can develop into two steps in Christian life. Salvation by grace through faith, and then another step. You've got to be dedicated or rededicated. It's almost two steps. Spiritual formation. Uh, this is uh, mystical through spiritual disciplines. This is a, a, a largely a Roman Catholic view, but it's not limited to them. Christ will grow in the life of the follower of Christ through spiritual rites, uh, events, and experiences resulting in a union with Christ. Justification to the Roman Catholic is it's a process that works through your life. And since very few can attain that ultimate perfection, you have a period between your death and your final destination called purgatory where that whole thing is reviewed and you are purged from all the sins that you couldn't get rid of in a lifetime. So it's a formation group. In other words, we're having communion this morning. The question you need to ask, and I need to ask, is, is this a ritual or is this real? Am I going through this as a ritual, or am I really concentrating on the fact that Jesus gave his life, his body for me, on a tree, 
and that the sacrifice, the blood that was shed, covers my sin. And am I really enjoying that fellowship? And I ask myself the question, am I really in communion with the Lord? Where am I with the Lord in my life? And how much of a part does he really play in my life? It's kind of, he gave all for me, am I willing to give all for him? <laughs> if, God, if God, the Son, very God of very God, willing to become man of very man and go through all the horrendous things he went through in life and died on a cross for us and paid our hell for us, who am I to say that I can live my own life any way I want? That's a question you need to ask. All right, the Reformed view, that would be Presbyterians uh, um, of that group, uh, Reformed churches. Their view would be at the moment of salvation, one is justified and will progressively grow in sanctification. Excuse me, let's go back to the passage in uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7, which would be uh, one of their verses. 1 Timothy 4, 7. We're not denying that communion has a place. We only recognize two ordinances, baptism and communion. But we do not believe that baptism in and of itself, by itself, is any merit of any grace. Uh, it's the meaning of the ritual. It's the meaning of communion that carries uh, the benefit of it, not the act itself. All right. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Okay, discipline yourself, mine says, for the purpose of godliness. In other words, relying on the disciplines of the faith. If you have any questions about it, raise them. I'll try to answer them if I know it. Reformed viewpoint. At this moment of salvation, one is justified and will progressively grow in sanctification. We agree with that. Progress, progress, grow, and progressive growth should be, is not based on some crisis experience. Now we, may, we all face crisis experiences. And uh, we, would, we would say probably during those times, we are driven to be closer to the Lord. And we are probably closer to the Lord, the average Christian, during these crises, and as soon as the crisis is over, there's a human tendency, the old man tendency, to let up. To let up on that. Growth in the Lord is uneven, but will continue throughout the lifetime of the believer. If in time there is no evidence, this is the reform view, of spiritual growth in the professing believer, the most likely is that they were never truly born again. Most believers in this group believe you cannot accept Christ and deny him as Lord. That's what we would call in the last uh, 30 years, 40 years, we would call the lordship, salvation, uh, free grace <coughs> conflict that has been going on. Romans 10, 9-11 is their main, uh, be the main emphasis of this group. Romans 10, 9-11. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Okay. Uh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We don't disagree with that, do we? I don't. Are any of these six points, are any of them off? To some extent so far. We would agree with some, but not fully. you have a question, Brian? Yeah. When John MacArthur wrote his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, mm -hmm. he really 
put Lordship Salvation into what you're talking about here, in a way. I mean, he denied the, uh, the one, uh, the dedication part and all that. Yeah, uh, he did not. What, what happened was, uh, back in the 90s and late 80s, John MacArthur wrote a book called uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. And uh, he went after the Free Grace Movement, which was started basically by, by uh, Schofield and uh, Lewis Berry Chafer. Lewis Berry Chafer was a convert of Schofield. Schofield was a, an attorney, uh, and he was saved, and uh, he categorized the dispensational point of view and that became very popular. But in the, in the days in which Schofield was saved, the dominant theme of Christianity in America, in the evangelicals, was social gospel. That you had to be involved in doing social work, and, and that was salvation, a work salvation. So these two men stressed grace. Or it should have been. You're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. And so they stressed it to a point. Well, that developed into a point where uh, in, in He That Is Spiritual, that book, and I have the book, and if you want to see it, you can read it. But I have the book, and he said, there's no need for repentance in that book. No need at all for repentance. And all you have to do is believe. Well, he began a, a seminary back in the 30s, early 30s, called Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, not all of his professors believed that, but the seminary was so biblically oriented, and rightly so, I almost went to that seminary, uh, that, that it dominated the teachers of that seminary dominated Bible schools. Philadelphia College of the Bible, Moody Bible Institute, Grace Bible Institute, Biola of Los Angeles, and uh, other Bible schools, the professors. That uh, repentance was almost out of the, almost out of the salvation entirely. Uh, was not in the salvation message at all. Except in the reform groups, the Presbyterians, the uh, Reformed theology. Uh, Dallas Seminary was weak on predestination, and one of the main one of their main followers said predest the only person that was predestined was Jesus Christ, and uh, rest it was up to your free will. So John wrote a book, and against Ryrie, Ryrie had a book, and John MacArthur wrote a book. Uh, against what Ryrie was saying when it came to salvation. You don't need repentance. Repentance is a work, and it's not to be included in, in salvation by grace. And uh, that became a very interesting controversy back in the 90s and early uh, 20, 21st century. So... Um, that controversy, in fact, I was involved in it as well. I, about that time, I took a church in, in the 90s in Kansas City, and Calvary Bible College was very much uh, into the free grace. And I took that church there, and uh, next thing you know, we were in controversy with uh, Calvary Bible College, which said, don't go to... Southwest Bible Church, now Mission Road Bible Church, because they are lordship, and they believe in repentance, and they're teaching salvation by works. That's what they told the students when they went there. Interestingly enough, I was on the board advisory to the president at that time. And he would, he was somewhere in between the president at that time. So this has been a controversy in, the, in this. And by the way, this church is the result of that controversy too. 
you took the Lordship side as opposed to free grace. And so the question is, can you be saved and not believe that Jesus is Lord? Can you say, I believe Jesus is Savior, but He's not Lord? No. no. Romans 10. Yeah. You can't. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. So how can you deny, how can you say you've got to, and here's, it became a two-step salvation. First of all, you accept Jesus as Savior, and at some subsequent time, you accept Jesus as Lord. He's not, when I'm saved, He's not the Lord of my life, but later I find out He is the Lord of my life, and that is connected closely to Lewis Perry Chafer's dedication. See how that works? So this became a big brouhaha. Zane Hodges was one of the main key men who was a very favorite professor at Dallas. He was the head of the Greek professors. Uh, he is very good in Greek. And uh, Zane Hodges and Ryrie. And Ryrie was a very solid guy. He was president of Philadelphia College of the Bible, wrote tremendous things, and became a professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary ended up getting a divorce and uh, uh, free grace people have it's been strange yes Lord so I just need to re re be reminded is there a Ryrie Bible and a Schofield Bible that have been written by these two these men that, that is true do you have any <clears throat> recommendation on if these Bibles are I would say all Bibles with men's notes. I want a question. Pure word. John MacArthur has a Bible too. John MacArthur's notes. And I, I somehow, this is my own personal conviction, when you say John MacArthur Bible, it's not John MacArthur's Bible. Not Schofield Bible. It's not Ryrie Bible. It's the Holy Bible. And like the guy, Southern Black preacher said, I believe that the words Holy Bible. That's what it is. It's a scripture. Now these guys have Schofield Bible has done more for dispensational theology than anything else. And I'm very thankful for that. My dad grew up on Schofield notes and Scripture Press, but but uh, and I started out with Schofield as well, uh, and uh, most of the scripture that I memorized are the King James. So you hear in my when I quote the scripture, a lot of it is King James. But uh, but just be aware of that. No no theologian is perfect in every way. I think I am. <laughs> but I know I'm not. Okay. But I just bring that up because it is a con it, was, it was a controversy. Yeah, it is a controversy, and, and this whole thing of progressive sanctification has been a controversy since the uh, day of Pentecost. So we have what we call free grace. Let's take a look at that. Salvation is by grace alone through apart from any human work or merit. You agree with that? I think that's a fair statement. It is a cut and dried issue if you have a simple faith that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, one is safely uh, saved eternally. If that's all you have to do is believe. The problem is in the question of defining belief. Is it intellectual? Yes, but it's more than that. You can't commit to something you don't know that's intellectually true or not, right? But it's that commitment of faith 
where the question really comes in. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in an object. That's the difference. I, when, I, when I say I believe that Jesus Christ saved me, he died on the cross for me, was buried and rose again, I actually am committed to that. I commit myself to that. It's a difference than just intellectually knowing that. Uh, faith is a commitment. Faith comes from the word persuasion. It's, there is a word for pers persuasion in the Greek, but this is in that family of words. Persuaded. Now there's a, there's a, uh, there's a bridge in northern Michigan over the, the straits that, that join the, the Lake Michigan with Lake Superior. Very high. It's so high that they have people at each end that people are afraid to go over it. And they'll drive your car over for you. You can hire them to do it. If you have faith that bridge will hold you, you make a commitment and drive over it, right? If you don't, you hire a guy or you don't go over at all, take a ferry. I don't, I've never been there. There's no ferry. But it's quite a bridge, evidently, and I saw a thing on television about it, the fear that people have going over bridges. And as a kid, I used to fear bridges. Uh, they'd be in my dreams. And, and no matter where I'd go, we'd go over a bridge and end in the brink. But uh, I don't fear that anymore. But... Um, but you got to have faith that that bridge holds when you go. You commit yourself to it. How about seven mile bridge to Key West? Yeah, there you go. But it's not high. <laughs> not as high. No. <laughs> it's like I heard the illustration. I heard the illustration this week. Okay, you take off on a highway where you do not know, you know you want to go from A to B on the highway, and you go around the corner, do you have faith the highway still goes, even though you can't see it? You've committed yourself to that road. That's faith. So the free grace movement would say, okay, they have, in their progressive sanctification, they have, there's a tendency to divide Christians into two classes. The class, one class is the spiritual Christian and the carnal Christian. And the carnal Christian is one who's living in the flesh in a state of carnality. In other words, you can be saved and never walk with the Lord and die and go to heaven. And never show any sign that you're a believer. You're, you, they would call that the carnal state. Now, there is such a thing as carnality when a person is living in the flesh. That's what the word carnal means. You can be living in the flesh, but that generally comes and goes and comes and goes. That's that uneven growth. But if you're a believer, there is a change. 2 Thessalonians says... For if we, any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. He cannot but show it. And he has a new heart toward God. So there is a, a progressive salvation then is not necessary. For it's the Holy Spirit who accomplished the growth. And there is in this branch of this free grace... A liberate theology on progressive sanctification. We had to work this out in our church here. And these guys are known as the boys. They formed a little group. And uh, 
Brian Yon was one of the head of it. And the key to them was sanctification is you be open. You tell people about your sins. Because when you are growing otherwise, <clears throat> you're full of fear of legalism of people finding out what you are doing. And you're living in fear and you're not enjoying your salvation. Whereas if you're open about it, and you do what you want to do, you just tell people. And that openness, that transparency is what frees you. You don't have to confess your sin. Christ died on a cross, paid for all your sins, not necessary. And they do not like the imperatives of the New Testament. In other words, for them, the Christian life is in the indicative mood, not the imperative mood. The indicative mood is a statement of facts. You know, you had that in English. I don't know if they still teach it. But in English, you had the indicative mood. The statement was not necessarily true or false. It was just a statement. But when you get to the imperative mood, it's a command. Pray without ceasing is a command. Right? Believers may not start out praying like they always ought to, but they end up praying. They, they see the more value of prayer as they get in the Word and through Christ's experience how important prayer really is. I mean, all of us who are growing into Christian faith would admit we didn't pray like we should, and maybe we're not praying yet as like we should, but we all started out, we're saying praying more, and we're seeing the importance of it. It's a progressive thing, is it not? Can you explain save yet as by fire? I mean, is this guy, I mean, what's your explanation of that? Is saved as though by fire in 1 Corinthians 3. They're hanging on. I would use the example of uh, Lot in, uh, I want to say 1 Peter. Maybe 2 Peter, I'm not. Remember it says he had a righteous soul and he was vexed even though he was not totally living for God. Let me ask you a question. If you were to die right now, would you say your total fellowship with God right now? Honestly. You'd probably say there's some things I need to straighten out. But you're saved, aren't you? You got a thief on the cross. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd say saved by fire is. Would you say that all your sins are confessed right at this very second? And the next second you drop dead? You get a bullet between your eyes? And you still have unconfessed sin? Or are you going to go to heaven or hell? Where are you going? To heaven. Heaven. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for you and died for those sins, even though you had some finished, unfinished business here. I'd say you're saved by fire. How many sins do you have? How many sins do you have to commit to say you're saved by fire? Hundred. Two. How many sins did it take to kick Adam out of the garden? One. Correct? God is a holy God. Can't handle one sin. We want to rate sins. We want to rate sins, don't we? I'm not a sinner because I don't murder, even though I hate my neighbor. I'm not an adulterer, even though I have sins of adultery in my mind. So I'm not as bad as an adulterer, right, in my own mind? Sin is sin. Huh? Sin is sin. That's right. That's what Jesus said. Sometimes we as Christians run around pompous, and we need to remind uh, 
what Luther said, we are saved sinners. We're no better than anybody else except that we know Christ and we are growing. We're still sinners, I mean, even till the day you die. We always want to judge outward sins that we see, but we yeah. all have, you know, we all sin. Yeah. You know, that's that's really easy for, for us to do mm -hmm. as, as believers is to judge people because you can see their outward sins. Mm -hmm. We're all sinners too. And one thing about being a Christian is we don't judge. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a sin. Right, right, it's a sin. It's okay. Yeah. Man, I'm just thankful for grace. I believe in free grace. There's there's an awesome opportunity, you know, to come alongside somebody like you know that had an outward sin and and just you know talk to them and and uh, allow you know tell them you know everybody sins and and it's a good opportunity. To reach out to people. You see somebody covered with a bunch of tattoos, what's your first thought? Uh, we were traveling one time to Denver and we stopped in, uh, in uh, Goodland, Kansas for gas. And we needed something, so we went into a Walmart and we're checking out a Walmart and the guy ahead of us had tattoos all over. I mean, he had tattoos on his bald head, he had tattoos, neck, his arms, everything. And he was fumbling around for change and he just couldn't get it, couldn't get the change. So Faith was ahead of me and she said, here's a buck, take care of his change. Because we're in a hurry. This was an act of mercy because... So we get out there, and uh, he's waiting for us. And he said, I wish my mom would have been as kind as you are. And Faith says, well, it's not a matter of kindness, it's a matter of whether you know Jesus Christ or not. He pulls up his t-shirt, and there's a whole picture of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I told Faith in the car, I said, Man, I was slow. I should have said it's more important you have Jesus in your heart than all <laughs> But I didn't, but uh, I, I didn't think of it till later. But what's our first reaction when we see those? Some of the sins we do stay for out there, don't they? But... Uh, I think we all need a lesson that we are saved by grace, we've repented of our sin, and we turned our lives have turned around, yet we're not sinless. We're sinners saved by grace. We're Christians and sinners at the same time. Father, we thank you that uh, you love us, in spite of who we are and what we are. And it's because of your gracious nature, your love for us. Oh man, I'm so thankful for that. Your steadfast love, as the psalmist said. Love your steadfast love. Be with us now in this service and the one to come in Jesus' name. Amen.